I'm Katie. And I'm Michael. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. some wine got a little blankie it's ready what, to listen to a story what are you drinking this evening some red wine out of a box like a classy person <laughs> amazing i'm yeah. drinking white wine out of a little box from target nice also good um yeah it's the boda box b-o-t-a oh mm-hmm. do you think we can get them to be an advertiser for us I don't know. You guys have delicious wine. Un- unsolicited. You guys have delicious wine. So, if you want to help us out, let me know. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's nice. It's like Malbec or whatever. It's good. Nice, nice red wine. What do you got? Um, I think it's a Chardonnay. It, it's sort of like generic Target white wine. Nice. But also great. Would highly recommend target wine is great especially the little like juice box size wines get like four glasses is it four per box yeah which nice. as a like single human being living in a hotel is the perfect size for my box wine live your dream i got the family size box because my fridge is big enough <laughs> fair enough yeah um, so since we're drinking what should we talk about <laughs> I feel like we probably should be drinking Guinness or something else stereotypically Irish, given the That's supposed fair. theme of this week. That's fair. That's fair. Um, which is St. Patrick's, Patrick's Day. Day. Yay. Yay. Happy St. Patrick's Irish Day. Are in your family? Happy St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> um, for the longest time, I thought I was Irish, but very recently discovered that, like, I think I'm English and not Irish. So it's, like, mm-hmm. the slight difference in, like, one pasty white island versus another pasty white island but yeah but don't you find that you want to kind of be the the underdog one uh everyone i think based on ancestry dna tests all i can say is that nobody wants to be english most of us are english it's (laughs) nobody wants to be british it's like boring so do you british english do you have any irish in you i do my name is Mary Kathleen, and we're Catholic. I'm just, yeah, no, but actually, uh, German probably more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do have a pretty close tie to Welsh. One of my grandma's, my m- maternal grandmother line is Welsh specifically. Um, but yeah, Irish. Uh, my dad's mom's side is all Irish, and you can tell that. I mean, in our cultural upbringing, my understanding when we were young was always to gravitate towards the Irish side. So that's clearly the side that sort of took over mm-hmm. for many reasons, even though our last name is actually German. We, we, in our spirits, I think, are more Irish than anything. You'd like to have an O in front like of it? We'd like to claim that team. Yeah, we would play for that team. Duly noted. Mm-hmm. So I'm a fan. Um... But yeah, St. Patrick, I don't, I, I, I was tempted with my person when we'll talk about her in a minute. I was tempted to start talking about St. Patrick because they have a lot in common, but I didn't end up researching him as much as I had planned on doing it because we're not doing the St. Patrick's 
as a theme. Well, it's a theme, but it's like not about him. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. So I don't know if you've got any anecdotes in your back of your brain for when I get to my lady, but I'm trying to. I'm trying to think. So I studied abroad in Dublin my junior year of college, and we had to take like a two week intro to Ireland course when we got there. Solid. Uh, and did I think spend at least like. 30 minutes one morning talking about St. Patrick and the only Mm -hmm. thing I remember is our very cheeky Irish history professor you know he's like and the legend is that he drove all the snakes out of Ireland Ireland. and then he looked at us and he's like and just to be clear that's a metaphor there were never snakes in Ireland or the devil I I think more on the devil part but he just wanted to be clear that like the like 150 international students like got that it was a metaphor yeah it's an anecdote let's be or not an anecdote it's a it's just one's having a time back here hang on was frankie excited to be celebrating the day she's just like she's playing with her sheep she's living her best life she's this little lamb chop toy and she's acting out you fun? <laughs> i mean sheep feels appropriately irish for the moment too yeah right it's very appropriate yeah my other ireland intro class stories that we went to like look at some old pre-english irish ruins and had to dodge mm-hmm. a field full of sheep poop and just like wow. i thought that was gonna be way more active than it was <laughs> it's literally just like we had to dodge a whole a field, field sheep poop sheep sheep poop and stuff gets you though you gotta be careful gotta watch out yeah. and they're everywhere sheep are everywhere in ireland mm-hmm Sheep but I pups. found out when I was there, raised for the meat and not the wool, like we all think they are. Oh, fascinating. They make all the sweaters out of Australian wool, not the Irish wool. That is kind of mind-blowing. Isn't that crazy? So when you're wearing it, it's maybe made in Ireland, the weaving and stuff, but didn't come from those sheep. Mm, well, I, I definitely ate a good Irish sheep or two. Oh, no. Baby ones? No, 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 no. Adult ones, because that somehow makes it better. Yeah, why is that? I think uh, give them a shot. Like everybody <laughs> wants to eat their animals when they've like died peacefully mm-hmm. in their sleep or something. But uh, yeah, those little lambs. I can't do lambs. That's sad. Yeah, neither can I. Probably because uh-huh. lamb chop. Now that I think about it, Frankie. <laughs> She's to blame. Guilt. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're going first on this festive holiday. Okay. I think I need to be clear up front, though. Festive okay. holiday, though it may be in prime yeah. me fashion, mm-hmm. it's not going to be a particularly festive episode, at least on my oh, end. Oh, why? Um, Wait, when's it set? It's set in the second half of the 20th century. Oh, um, that's worse than what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> okay. No, and for a change. So recently? <laughs> recent Irish history. Like, oh, no. super recent, but unrelated to the Troubles. Oh, okay. So it's going to be... Oh, let's let's just hop in. It'll become okay. pretty okay. evident pretty quickly okay. why this is not going to end well. Um, so the Irish woman I'm doing this week is named Veronica Guerin. Uh, oh, wait. There is apparently a pretty famous movie about her. Yeah. So you might have seen Oh, that. no, Michael. Yeah, like I said, oh, no. this is not going to end well for oh, us. Oh, no. Okay, let's get going. We're going to get into it. Um, she's born in July 1958, just north of Dublin. 
her and her four siblings go to Catholic school. Very surprising. Um, That's on brand. And she is going to be really good at sports. Uh, Plays Kamoji, which is the female version of hurling and also one of my favorite sport names of all time. Um, That's a good name. She also is going to play basketball and soccer. Uh, Mm -hmm. Is casually just dropped in there that she's the member of the national basketball and soccer teams in her late teens and early 20s. Um, Mm -hmm. So, like, she's a pretty good basketball player and she's a pretty good soccer player. Uh, She's going to be a huge sports fan throughout her life. Um, Her team is Manchester United, for those people who care strongly about those things. Mm -hmm. Um, And when she becomes a journalist later in her life, she often uses sort of sports small talk as a way to get her sources to open up um especially with sort of like gruff men who might not want to be talking to a woman about things she's just like chats them up about their latest like soccer game and all of a sudden they just want to talk about things Mm -hmm. so pretty crafty yeah it's her her wiles that's what they call the wiles right (laughs) exactly trickster she's a witch okay keep going sorry (laughs) Um, she is going to study accounting at Trinity College Dublin, which is where I studied abroad. It's got the, mm. the fancy old library, mm-hmm. um, which tourists line up outside of for hours to get into. But if you go to school there, you can just cut the line and get in for free. Nice. Did that all the time. I'm sure you did. You like a good library. I love a good library, and it's a really pretty library. Mm-hmm. Um, she's going to graduate in 1980 and starts working for her father's accounting firm. Uh, unfortunately, her father passes away in 1983, and so she's going to leave the company and go found her own public relations firm, mm-hmm. and ends up doing a lot of work for political parties in Ireland, specifically for Fianna Fáil. I think I'm I think I'm going to butcher most of the Irish pronunciations in this episode. Oh, me too. When we get to mine, don't even worry about okay, it. Okay, great. I'll be right there with you. <laughs> um, and this is Irish Ireland's center-right party the did you say irish ireland's maybe the irish the irish the irishiness it is the center-right party in ireland oh Uh, no and one of the funny things that we i'm sure i'm misremembering this but basically like irish politics is very close to the center so like the difference between the center-right party and the center-left party at least to outsiders is pretty insignificant um but so she's working for the like the more conservative of the two parties. Um, she's going to um, eventually end up working for Charles Haughty. That's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, who is the uh, Taoiseach or Prime Minister of Ireland at the time. Uh, will develop a very close relationship with his family, eventually going on to serve as the staff member on his son's campaign for the Irish Parliament. Uh, it's during this time in the 80s that she's going to marry her husband, Graham. And they have a son, Cathal. Also probably wrong. Uh, Great names. What <laughs> weird names. I love it. It's We don't hear them enough. Very Ireland. Mm. Uh, in 1990, she's going to make her big career change, uh, becoming a business reporter for the Sunday Business Post. Uh, the thing I learned doing this episode is that apparently every newspaper in Ireland is named Sunday. Uh, because she's then going to transfer from the Sunday Business Post to the news desk at the Sunday Tribune before getting a position as an investigative journalist at the Sunday Independent, which is Ireland's largest newspaper at the time. Uh, Very relatably, 
her first story is going to involve a bishop who had fathered an illegitimate child. Mm-hmm. Um, and his name's Eamon Casey. He's the Bishop of Galway. Uh, and it's this huge story in Ireland at the time. So every newspaper is trying to get an interview with him. Uh, he has, mm-hmm. in the course of this, fled to Ecuador. Oh, uh, when it comes choice. out that, like, he has a teenage son. Um, uh, and she's the one who gets the interview. And that's sort of what mm-hmm. makes the sort of breakout moment of her career. Uh, oh, no. Yeah. But what she... Mm-hmm. What re- year are we in? We're in... 1992, I think. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. See, you know where this is going to land. I'm going to drink my wine. Um, But she's really going to make a name for herself as an investigative crime reporter. Uh, Good crowd to be in. Oh, yeah. Especially in Dublin in the 90s. Mm, Uh, So, like most other major cities in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, Dublin's working-class neighborhoods at this time are suffering from a long history of systematic neglect, discrimination, and the impacts of a rapidly expanding international drug trade. Um, particularly Ooh. in the northern part of the city, uh, there are these large criminal organizations developing, um, mostly centered around the drug trade, particularly heroin. Um, and so, of course, with that, you get all of the illnesses that come along with intravenous drug use, in particular um, HIV, AIDS, and hepatitis. So it's just this sort of like perfect storm of policy choices and social issues and criminal issues that are combining to make a lot of these neighborhoods in Dublin very dangerous. Um, They're not getting the sort of government investment and support that they need. And so these large criminal organizations are growing really rapidly there. Um, the Irish police at the time, which is called the Garda, um, is not particularly well equipped to handle the rise of organized crime. Um, this is sort of a, a quirk you could say of Ireland's constitution legal system is that since their constitution is written in the immediate, basically immediately after Ireland is freed from British control, it, Mm -hmm. in a sort of similar way to the U S constitution is much more concerned with curtailing the power of the state than it is with giving the state powers. Mm -hmm. Um, Unlike the U.S. Constitution, the Irish Constitution has at this point not had enough time for those protections to decay. Um, So it still is pretty difficult for the government to wield powers to, like, summarily imprison people for years on end without charge. So, like, even, I mean, and to sort of put it in perspective, um, even to this day... Irish police officers don't carry guns with them. Yeah. Um, and in the 90s, they're operating under what is basically like the strictest set of restrictions of any country in Europe. So wow. there's sort of two ways you can look at it. Either like it's a victory for like people's freedom, but that makes you know it easier to be a criminal, or it's a sort of deep weakness that is allowing criminality to flourish. Complicated questions. Uh, we don't need to answer them, right? No, we don't. Let's we're, keep going. We're just going to flag them. And we're just going to plow right along. So okay. this is the this is the world that she's jumping in into in 1994. Um, and she is going to take what is described as an unusually bold approach to her work. And what that means what is that, that rather... Mean, Michael? 
rather than just like getting police reports and sort of talking to police officers, she's also going to interview the criminals who are involved in the stories that she's writing. Mm -hmm. So trying to get, you know, the stories from both sides. And that means that she's going to develop relationships with some of the people who are like the most dangerous people in Ireland. Um, Her first big crime story is going to be published in the fall of 94, uh, mm-hmm. A major figure figure in the Dublin underworld, whose name is Martin Cahill, uh, mm-hmm. also named known as the General. So there's this really interesting thing at this period where Ireland has incredibly strict libel laws to the point yeah. where, like, unless someone has been convicted of a crime, you can't name them, sort of like accusing them of criminal activity in the press because they can sue you and win. And so all of these major criminals have nicknames so that reporters can write about them and everyone knows who they're talking about, but because they're calling them the general or the zombie or the monk or the whale. The <laughs> oh no, there was just a list of these nicknames and I was like, ooh, these are excellent. The Teutonic idiot. Do you think he'll know we're talking about him? <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, so in this case, this article, um, is written shortly after Martin Cahill is murdered, um, and she publishes two stories, one that is hinting at the identity of the men who murdered him, and the other one is claiming that Cahill was having affairs with both of his wife's sisters, and that he had children with all three sisters. Oh my god, calm down. Go take a nap. (laughs) Go to bed, you weirdo. Yeah, and... You got too much time. Too much time, and strong choices Mm. um after these articles are published though uh someone drives by her house one night and shoots two bullets through one of her windows as a warning against writing more of these stories Uh, Uh, if we can take any guess because she's on the missing history podcast uh, she is not going to take that warning nope she's got things to do she's got to talk about cockroaches she does mr zombies um, so one of the really interesting things is that she's going to use her accounting experience um, to help trace the money that's involved in these criminal activities and sort of use that as one of her, the big tools to expose the people she's writing about. Um, and the, the, I mean, the fascinating thing is that this isn't really something the Irish police are doing at this time because they don't have the resources or the ability to track the financial dealings of these large criminal networks. So in a way, like, mm-hmm. she is out ahead of the state in terms of these kind of investigations, which I found really fascinating. Hmm. Um, so her next big story is going to come around in January 1995. So there is a massive robbery outside of Dublin where over mm-hmm. $4.4 million is stolen, like just legit money, just like straight up taken out of somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, she writes a story about the robbery and then another where she identifies Gary Hutch, who's called the monk, um, as the mastermind behind the robbery. And people are not happy about this. Why? So uh, they don't like being called out in the national press for having just pulled off the most daring bank robbery in a decade, in part because oh, no, they're, they're trying to get away with it, and she's trying to keep them from doing that. So the next day, a man knocks on her door, When she goes to open it, he holds a pistol up to her head and then lowers it down and shoots her in the leg before running Mm. away. You know, pretty 
pretty obvious warning about not doing what she's doing. Um, her newspaper in response installs a security system in her house and the police assign her a 24-hour protective detail. But when she gets released from the hospital, she's still on crutches, but she goes and visits every crime boss that she knows to personally let them know that she's not going to be intimidated out of following this story. Oh, my God. Yeah. Girl. She is a legitimate (laughs) badass. What? Uh, That's okay. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of this question of like, yeah, that is bold, but also a little bit of sense of self-preservation might be in order. Um, You're not good to us dead. No. Um, She's going to write a piece in The Independent a few days after she is released from the hospital uh, where she says, quote, I have said already, and I will say it again now, that I have no intention of stopping my work. I shall continue as an investigative reporter, the job I believe I do best. My employers have offered alternatives. Any area I wish to write about seems to be open to me. But somehow I cannot see myself reporting from the fashion catwalks or preparing a gardening column. Okay, those aren't your only two options, but okay. Like I, I get your sentiment, but like Yeah. Once again. Uh-huh. Keep going. Yep. Um, so she's going to continue pursuing these kinds of stories. Uh later in 1995, she's writing a story about John Gilligan, who despite the like cute Irishness of his name is a major criminal figure in Dublin. Mm-hmm. Uh she's going to travel out to his sort of country estate in an attempt to interview him. Um, Mm. When she arrives, he gets very angry, um, assaults her, throws her up against her car, tries to find if she's got a wire on her, um, and then in the casual way that... He was probably gross about it, is what that means. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Um, Mm. And then threatens to kill her if she writes anything about him. So she's going to write about him? Oh, yeah. Um, And she's (laughs) actually as the story goes on the phone with her lawyer the next day to talk about what her options are when Gilligan calls on the phone and threatens her and her son if he reads any story about him himself published in her paper uh and she's like on the phone with her lawyer as he's doing this um but in December of 95 she's gonna get recognized by the committee to protect journalists with the international press freedom award uh, for the work that her writing has been doing, bringing accountability to Irish criminal organizations um, in terms of, like, investigative reporting things. This is, like, one of the biggest awards you can get. Um, and she's going to come back from that ceremony, like, pretty renewed with the conviction that she is going to start writing about these people without using their pseudonyms. Mm-hmm. Um she puts it this way, uh, quote, the names by which we now call them are flamboyant inventions, which, if anything, only detract from our understanding of their capacity for atrocity. Oof. Yeah. She knows what she's talking about. She does. Um, unfortunately, that's going to be one of the last things that she publishes. Um, on June 26, 1996, she's driving back into the city Uh, from contesting a speeding ticket and she's going to stop at a red light at an intersection outside of Dublin. A motorcycle pulls up next to her and the man on the back of it fires six shots into her car. Um, She is struck and killed. She's by herself. Uh. Um, 
And her murder strikes a really deep chord in Irish society. Uh, a few days later, on July 4th, um, it's marked by a national minute of silence. Uh, and her funeral is attended by both the Irish president and prime minister. And it's capped off by this really heartbreaking image of her six-year-old son being uh, lifted up to kiss her casket. Yeah. Oh, my God. So it is just, like, all around heart-wrenching. Oh, God. Um, and it pretty obviously raises a whole lot of national attention. Yeah. Um, so several of the men associated with John Gilligan's gang are going to be tried for her murder. Three of them are convicted, and another 150 people are arrested as part of Whoa. a massive crackdown um, resulting from her death. Wow. Yeah, so Ireland kind of goes from not having a really good way of dealing with these organizations pretty much overnight to having some of the strongest laws against organized crime. Wow. Um, And a lot of them are very directly a result of her murder. Um, In particular, the... God, that's what it takes? Yeah, that is. To get a spine and make some law happen? Um, Unfortunately, that is how this seems to work. A mother with a six-year-old boy has to die? Mm-hmm. Because, oh, okay, great. Mm-hmm. Yep. Keep going. <laughs> um, so Ireland is going to create the Criminal Assets Bureau, which uses a lot of the same accounting and tax techniques that Garen used in her reporting uh, to pursue money and assets involved in organized crime. Yeah, follow the money. I mean, isn't that what they got Capone for? Yep. He didn't actually ever go to prison for murdering anyone. He went for, like, taxes, didn't yep. he? Yep. It's always the taxes. It's always yeah. the money. Um, the money. There's this really interesting story um, during the a similar period in the U.S. where the DEA was trying to figure out, like, where all of the money from these large Mexican drug cartels was going. Because mm. it all happens in cash, and you need to get several million dollars a week of cash, like into a bank somewhere. So yeah. they set up a fake bank with the idea of like using it to get cartel money, oh, uh, yeah. and then used that bank to like track a lot of where the money was coming from, where it was going, and then also to like take the money away from the cartels. So it's yes. definitely like a sort of tried and true method for dealing with this. Yeah. Um. So Garen is memorialized um in a number of places there's a statue to her at the grounds of dublin castle which is the place where the irish president lives um her name is on the freedom forum journalist memorial in arlington um, and she's going to be named as one of the 50 world press freedom heroes in 2000 um there's also a scholarship in her name that funds a student studying investigative journalism at Dublin City University. And of course, there is the 2003 film named after her, starring yeah, Kate Blanchett, yeah. um, which, having read the reviews, is apparently just okay. <laughs> which that's is funny. deeply disappointing. That's I mean, it's kind of a bleak topic without a great ending. I mean, it's like, how fun can it be? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, from what I read, there was, like, the biggest complaint with the movie was it took what is, like, an incredibly compelling story and kind of made mm. it into a boring procedural. Oh, that just, that's like, happened to star Kate Blanchett, so. So she brings it. She brings it, but the rest of it is 
less than stellar. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's Veronica Guerin. Thanks. I have not seen the movie, but that's how I knew that name. Because mm-hmm. of Kate Blanchett. But I didn't realize... I couldn't remember if it was drugs or um, something else. What was it? Yeah. Oh, crap, Michael. Okay, great. I, I was a little worried you were going to do, like, nuns who take babies away. No, no, no. Or something terrible. <laughs> when you were, like, second half of the 20th century. I was like, oh, no, the 60s weren't good to a lot of people <laughs> in Catholic Ireland. No, they um, were not. But the late 80s and early 90s? Also not good for a lot of people. Also not great. No, we, yeah, they went through a lot of stuff. 20th century, a lot of stuff happening in Ireland. A lot of stuff. Yeah, I think that's a bit of an understatement. Cool. Thanks, Michael. You're welcome, Katie. I need to go get more wine. Okay. Okay, let's take a little break. Back in a second. All right, Michael. Good job with your... 20th century 21st 20th 20th. century 20th oh god i know it's hard i'm tired (laughs) tired and you got more wine i imagine um yeah i got i got enough i got enough to get through this so i'm gonna go farther back take a take a guess at the uh century that i'm talking here i'm gonna put it like eighth century Ooh, close. Damn. Uh, fourth, I guess? Third, fourth? Okay, so not really that close at all. I mean, comparatively, you were in the, like, three digits, right? Yeah, fair, fair. You weren't fully into the teens or anything. Okay, so... That was pretty good. Three hundreds. We're going to do a little combo. We're going to talk about one fictional person. And by fictional, I mean a deity, so not a person. <laughs> and then... <laughs> And then a person. Um, okay. But they both share the same name, which is Bridget. Uh, there's a Saint Bridget of Ireland, but there's also um, an Irish deity named Bridget. So I guess we'll start with the deity because she sort of informs the the saint later on. Is this going to be a case where, like, the Christians come in and Don't like, spoil things. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> There's not much here because it was written in 525, so I only got little things. Go for it. I'm so sorry. Um, but probably. You're probably right because you're smart and you know what's going on. Um, let me find it. Deity. Looking up my notes. There it is. Okay, great. So pre-Christian Christian, pre-Christian uh, Ireland had a polytheistic society like most places did. Monotheism is not a thing. In uh, very early church times. So uh, we all know St. Patrick is the one that is credited with basically bringing Christianity to Ireland. And while that is true, there's clearly um, other uh, Christians coming over and like spreading the word because Bridget was born. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's start with the deity. So prior to him coming over, which is like 400s, I want to say, they're not sure. He doesn't have as many specific dates. Um, late 400s we're talking about. So it's pre-Vikings even getting over there, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very untouched little, uh, little, Ireland. little patch of Ireland. Yeah. Maybe some Romans showed up, but they didn't really like Ireland because there were a lot of rocks. So they kind of went back to Britain and dealt with Boudicca and stuff. Um, <laughs> 
So they're uh, the native Irish people. There's like a lot of history. It all ties into Lord of the Rings in a weird way. Like there's this whole really? mythos of like there were pre-humans that lived in Ireland that were not people. They were like another, um, but they kind of faded away. And then there's a lot of stories about like standing on top of a hill and seeing a pyre get lit. And that was how you transferred messages and like. The whole thing with Patrick coming over is that he came over and he lit the pyre without asking and that was a big deal and like there's a whole lot of stuff that I'm like oh you just you stole this for all these fictional books um it's all Irish history <laughs> and so Bridget was a um early goddess of these people pre-Christian Irish people um she's she's affiliated with uh the start of spring and her um feast day was actually around the beginning of February so there's a lot of kind of dovetailing of traditions that I've seen that inform today so like she's kind of got this with all of the things that are associated with her and later on St. Bridget there's a lot of like a little bit of a Mardi Gras feel even though we're not French we're more Irish but there's still like similar feast days happening of like celebrate the spring Mm -hmm. and get get excited about the equinox and uh, um, what is it the Solstice? Summer solstice? I don't know. Yeah. Spring solstice? What happens in March? The spring... Yeah. Spring solstice? I don't know. <laughs> Daylight savings you know, time. All the moons and stars and stuff, they're all pumped about it in the spring. <laughs> um, so Bridget, the goddess, is affiliated with this time period. She's like the lone female deity at the top of these... Uh, system of worship she's like the main one she's less is written about her the other ones kind of take more notice mm-hmm. um but she is like uh one of the main ones and uh they're also think like she could have been like this weird triple deity so there was a she, they were all called bridget but one has one was okay one was healing and fertility one is I'm sorry. One is fertility, one is healing, and one is a smith, so a crafts crafts person. Okay. And they're all three levels of one person. So there's just like I'm sensing interesting thought of like three can be one and one can be three. What a concept! It predates uh, Judeo-Christian times. How about that? Um. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> so. <laughs> I'm just saying we like to borrow things. Um. It is kind of our thing. And by our thing, I mean Christianity. People. Like, people. Like, people just talked like this. And we always talk like this, and then somebody puts a new stamp on it. So, anyway, guess what happens? Uh, Patrick comes over. He gets the snakes out. Uh, I think he... Wolves, too? I don't know. Isn't the thing it's with him like wolves? Whatever. Metaphors. He was great. He was the golden boy. Everybody loved him. Meanwhile, there's this girl who's born hold on there's not a lot of details because it's the fifth century (laughs) Um, oh she's born in a county that i can't pronounce louth yeah louth i think l-o-u-t-h yeah great near there fochart folkart near dundalk county louth ireland i don't know where that is but she's born there um there's some discrepancy about her uh Heritage, from what I could tell, the main theory is that her mother was a enslaved woman who was a Christian, and her father was the owner of said slave woman, 
and was of noble parentage. But because her mom was a slave, she was born into slavery. Hmm. She's tossed around a lot as a child because she's a girl and like it's whatever. Um, (laughs) And then because she becomes a saint later on, this is where a lot of the like legend starts to Mm -hmm. take hold. So this is not, I just want to be clear, this is not based on fact. There's no citable source. It's Mm -hmm. all legend. But here's some of the legends about her, which are bananas. So... She was sold to a druid landowner when she was a baby. The druid's like, oh, I guess I have to feed this baby. Um, I'll give it milk. Here we go. Uh, little baby Bridget was like, ew, this milk is disgusting because you are a pagan druid and you are not pure. So therefore I cannot eat and finish this food. And so I don't know why that mattered, but she couldn't eat from the way he was feeding her but apparently they brought in a pure white cow with red ears which apparently was a big deal i don't know why (laughs) and she was able to uh drink that cow's milk and actually sustain herself so i don't know if the cow is jesus or god or something but i don't know it seems deep there's a lot of portraiture of her with a white cow with red ears it's a big deal apparently red ears were a big deal because it's the one detail that they got out of that story interesting and then they fed a baby and she was fine um, Please, I, I, I'm sure this is not how the portraits are set up. Was it ahead. her <laughs> underneath the cow, like milking it no. into her mouth? No. Okay. She's still, I mean, like, she's a baby. I don't know. Look at some stained glass. It's weird. She's, you know, it's weird. Um, She's got a good reputation as a kid. She's, uh, when she is, she's, okay, let me just get this clear. So, she was always very pious as a child they think somehow even though she wasn't around her mother she still became a christian as a child so she gets back together with her mother at some point whether her mom was sold into slavery with her to these other people or not but at some point she goes back to her father's home because she is technically the guy who owns her she never got out and out sold but she has um stayed a Christian this whole time and apparently when she gets back to her dad's house he kind of treats her well and she's like oh cool well I guess you're doing pretty good for yourself man I'm just gonna start giving away all your stuff to the poor because you don't need all this and like would be charitable on his behalf um and he was like "Mm, I we can't do this anymore so uh he takes her to um the king which back then there was a king every 20 miles so who knows a king nearby and uh she took um she took the king okay hold on as he spoke to the king bridget took her dad's jeweled sword which why would you have a jeweled sword um gave it to a beggar so that he could use it to get food for his family and the king coincidentally apparently was a christian and he was like oh you're a great person so she now is free because i'm a king and in charge of your stuff so then she became free from that um, allegedly checks out. So, I bet her dad was just—he was just trying to get her off her hands. And she just keeps giving away <laughs> stuff. As he's like, "Come on, Bridget, I, just leave. It's my jeweled sword. My mom gave me that." I feel like that's a um, theme. There's definitely like I think a couple of saints whose thing is being the daughter of rich parents and like giving yeah. their stuff away without permission. I love it, and they're like, "Oh, I can't do this anymore." So. He's, um, he's like, yeah. There's also another story where, like, 
the dad tries to marry her to the king and he is so impressed by her piety that he's like, I will just grant you freedom so that you can pursue your life with Christ. Um, either way, she apparently gets uh, freedom at some point from a king. That's about all we can tell that's true. Okay. Okay. There's a lot of miracles that start to take place. So there's some stuff of like curing a blind nun or... Um, yeah, or in the one case, she cured a blind nun who then realized that she didn't need to see because God could see inside her soul. So then she was asked to turn back to blindness, to which I'm like, that's a terrible story. Um, <laughs> but the other one that I like, that you know Bridget's Irish, is that she is said to have miraculously changed water into beer for a leper colony. So, And the also other one out. is provided enough beer for 18 churches from a single barrel. So she knows how to party. Woot woot. She is sometimes considered one of the, the patron saints of beer. So, you know, she's in the right homeland. Yes, she um, is. So then we get into, like, her monastic situation. And so once she was free from her <laughs> enslavement. Can you, that I think is my new favorite term. Her monastic what? Her monastic situation. Her monastic situation. So this whole tie-in to the Bridget goddess. So clearly there's, like, terminology for this name of being affiliated with harvest, or not harvest, sorry, spring, so birth and renewal and the beginning of seasons and stuff. Um, And her tie-in with this whole cow mythology and the, like, peasant uh, farm culture that was Ireland at this time, you can tell a lot of things are starting to layer on and, like, there's probably room for her to become a symbol because also she's the first sort of woman taking over the church's role in this country. So a lot of people nowadays, as they look back, they're like, it makes sense that she and Patrick were like a package deal because there was sort of a balance before that of worshiping male and female deities. So as you got these kind of new leaders, um, you'd have Patrick symbolizing like the male side of things and then Bridget would symbolize the female side of things and that also goes to say with like her work at establishing the church in Ireland is a huge achievement that she was able to um, do in her lifetime so she she travels all around spreading Christianity um, I'm sorry if you can hear the vacuum in my neighbor right now we're just gonna pause for a moment um, okay, so my notes just froze, so hold, please. Why can we do, like, a episode and a half, and then it's like, mm, I'm done. It's like, you're not following the appropriate work-life balance right now, so I'm going to enforce I'm it on you. I'm having fun. Leave me alone. Okay, where was I? Um, Maybe I can re- just do it from memory. <laughs> you had been talking about, like, establishing the church, and... Oh, okay. I can wing it, then. Okay. So... Let's see. Okay, so she starts her monastic journey, right? So um, at some point, she uh, finds herself in Kildare, and or in the Irish, it's like Kildara or Kildara, and Kildara is like Church of the Oak or something like that. Um, guys, I'm doing this without notes, so forgive me. We're really going to wing it at this point. Um, so Church of the Oak, she's like, this is where I'm going to build a nice monastic situation for everybody, and... No one else seems to be wanting to set up shop for some people to learn about Jesus. So I'm going to do that. Like we have churches, but I'm going to make a place for people to devote their lives. Um, So she sets up not only a uh, monastery, but also like an abbey. 
and um, basically sets up a system for both genders to participate. She is equal opportunity at this point. And um, she signs up her friend Conleth to serve as the archbishop, but she serves as like the abbess of uh, religious life in Kildare at this time. And what that means is like, uh, in normal situations, the bishop sort of outranks whatever the nun, the higher up of the nun would be. In some places, in an abbess or a mother superior in now modern terms. But at that time, because she had established it uh, for a long, a long time after her as well, the archbishop would yield to the abbess at the time. Oh, in that's that particular fascinating. vein of faith. Yeah, which is different. They definitely worked in tandem. There was a balance of the genders. Both were seen to be necessary for the development of the church in Ireland, and both were sort of crucial to continuing the work, which is sort of unique um, at that time. Uh, what is she? She's making beer. She's making a lot of beer for people. Uh, what else? Let's see. Let me try and wing it. Conlith. Oh, while also at her um, in Kildare setting up her monastery, part of that is setting up a school. And um, an artistic kind of expression school. So at this time, you know, it's what, 400, 500 AD? So there's not a ton of learning going on. But what there is is a lot of like, um, there's this whole history of monasteries and religious life being tied up to the like continuation of education. Because they are the ones who were well versed enough to learn how to write and read. Mm -hmm. And be able to then pass that on by handwriting all books prior to the print printing press becoming invented. So these monasteries were like sites of great learning. And so her art, um, off of the monastery, they, they formed a school that like pursued metal work and illustration and writing of books and things. And they made the book of Kildare, which is apparently like thought of as divine well, at the time it is remarked as being it was it was made through divine means not by the work of man it was so beautiful so interesting they turn out these kind of relics that are still appreciated today in terms of like beauty and interest um so she fosters the art she sets up the church what else she lives to about 525 they don't have a birth date for her but by all accounts she dies of natural causes which at that time could be like I don't know, a paper cut, like anything to take you out at that point because they don't understand anything. But, um, oh boy, she apparently passes away on February 1st. Coincidentally, when they were taking those records down, it's also the feast day of the goddess Bridget, and she is Saint Bridget. So, what happens when a well known Christian lady dies? That becomes her feast day. Oh, look at that. We've just co opted the original feast day of the goddess Bridget, and now it's Saint Bridget's day because that's her feast day, and now we just took it over. And Oh, I see what they oh, did there. Oh, look at that. The goddess Bridget celebrated um, springtime and dairy life of like, sorry, cows. not dairy life, <laughs> cows and sheep and farm oriented uh work and smith smithery no what's it called smith making what is it metal working yeah but it's like smith oriented anyway this <laughs> coincidentally this goddess bridget who had a third of herself was known as being a smith a healer and a bearer of um fertility 
all of a sudden became folded into this Christian Bridget, who coincidentally is the patron saint of, like, farmers, mothers, babies, and smith work. Like, it's pretty obvious what they did there. (laughs) I was going to say, I'm shocked that those things lined up so conveniently. Pretty clear. And, oh my god, look at that! She died on the day that we celebrated the old thing. Can you believe it? It's the ultimate stealing your thunder. Um... (laughs) So then what happens? So perfect, normal, totally not weird to think about now. Her body is used as a relic for a long time. It stays in Ireland. Do At they some point, cut it into pieces or do they just keep the body? Wait for it, Michael. Oh, I'm sorry. At I don't want to spoil it. At some point, she's divvied up. Uh, she stays relatively intact, but now like parts of her are in Portugal. And then part of her is in Kildare in the church that she founded. Um her skull is in somewhere. I don't know. She's she's in bits and pieces at this point, but she is still around. Um, Catholicism is weird. It's it. You gotta tie it all in. Basically, everything that's weird about Catholicism is what we took from the pagans, in my opinion. We came up with our own stuff. We. <laughs> I don't subscribe to that group, but um, they came up with their own things. But a lot of the 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 nutsy stuff is all predates Christianity. We just sort of like. Put it in our little satchel to be like, that, that's a good one. We're going to stick that in. <laughs> Halloween, that sounds like fun. We're going to take that. Christmas, that sounds great. We're going to put that in there. We're going to call it St. Nick. Don't worry about it. Don't look too close. We're just going to get rid of the Krampus thing. We don't need him. He can just scoot around with the devil and we'll just let it go. Anyway, Bridget, she's doing great. Um, the last thing I want to talk about are two other <laughs> bananas <laughs> traditions. One is bananas. One is just fine. There's um, the tradition of a, a well, a, a St. Bridget's Well, which has to do with something about her being in the waters and, like, they have a healing property, like most places with water and religious people. Okay. All of a sudden, the water is healing, right? So there's all these Bridget Wells around Ireland that you can go to. And one of the traditions that I found really quite beautiful is at these wells, you would leave a picture of your, um, of a loved one that had maybe left... Or departed, or crossed over, or passed on, however you want to describe it. Um, So it actually just becomes, like, to my eye, to my non-denominational eye, it was a, anyone can participate in a memorial. Mm -hmm. It's a place of, like, mourning and loss, but it also, like, I think the tradition is, like, you leave your picture there, and then St. Bridget helps take that message to that person or whatever. I could be wrong about that. That's apocryphal from my very brief time in Ireland. But walking into this shrine, it was actually really beautiful. There's a little well at the very back. And then the whole, it's like um, not even like two body widths wide, long hallway of like cobblestone. and But you can't see the stone because it's just covered in photographs and pictures of people who have lost somebody um, of that person. So it's kind of this public shrine to people that have died. It's really gorgeous and interesting. Um, Another part of Bridget that has lasted to today is the St. Bridget's Cross, which is a certain kind of cross you can make with reeds. Mm. And it sort of looks almost square in the center. And the the, um, extensions of the cross are a little off off center Mm -hmm. um, to wrap it like a a reed. And uh, those are... Those, they think, predate Christianity and are seen as, like, a symbol of pagan times that just was able to transfer into a Christian viewpoint. 
um, with the knowledge of, like, Jesus dying on the cross, all of a sudden, like, all cross imagery became Christian very easily. Yeah. Co-opted um, that. But you would fast. put that up, you would put that up in your house as, like, a sign of, um, you would ask, you'd be asking St. Bridget to protect your home and watch over you. It's very, whole, like, horseshoe-like. It's not necessarily luck. It's more like, um, blessings and, and, uh, yeah, just watch guardian angel kind of stuff. Very cool. Um, I have one in my house. Um, cause I think it looks pretty and well, we'll get there. Um, but the other crazy tradition is called a biddy party. And this is one more time, some please. Stuff. Let's just wait. This is like how I thought it was kind of like Mardi Gras, kind of in a weird farmer Irish way. So what happens is you take your butter churn. <laughs> <laughs> Great start. Cause she's all about the cows, right? Cause mm-hmm. that white one with red ears that helped her out when she's a baby. So cows are her thing. Thus, butter is her thing, as it should be for all of us, because Irish butter is the best butter. Come at me, France. Carry um, gold for life. <laughs> where am I going to go? Biddy Bear. You take your... you So your Irish gal in the 1920s to 50s, I want to say, you're in County Kerry or wherever they celebrate <laughs> this. It's, I don't know. And you got your butter churn, and you're like, ugh, Okay, let's get let's get this party started. It is February in Ireland and I am bored. So let's have <laughs> a rager. And what you do is you go over to your girlfriend's house with your butter churn and you like flip it, I want to say, and then you decorate it to look like a woman. And you even dress it up to be dressed as a bride, which is a whole thing having to tie in with like the word bride and Bridget or, like, the saints in the Irish language is called breed, so it's close to bride. There's all this stuff. So you mm-hmm. dress her up as a bride. Um, she's a butter churn as a bride, guys. It's a whole thing. And then, because you have gendered social engagements, you're hanging out with all your girlfriends. Meanwhile, all the guys have gone to get drunk, put on masks, and come looking for the breed. Um so they come through the town looking for the butter churn dressed as a woman. <laughs> I don't know why. But they come to the house and they're like, can you spare a sixpence for the... Br-? Anyway, you're supposed to give them... It's it's such a racket. You're supposed to give them money so that St. Bridget blesses you. Because um, you're giving, you know, people less fortunate than you the chance to, like, celebrate. And then what happened is all the guys would pool the money... And they would either pool the money and go drink at the pub, said in a more charming way because they're Irish, but they would go drink at the pub with the money that they would get from people, or they would collect all the money and, like, hold a, a county dance for everybody to, like, celebrate, um, to, like, have a social thing to do as a group. But I like the idea of, like, yeah, let's start a party. Give me $6. Oh, why? Well, just, you know, Bridget's going to give it back to you. She's, it's her face day. Let's do it. And then they just go drink Guinness with it. Um, but one of the things is, like, you give to these biddy boys who are looking for the biddy, which is the butter churn woman. and um, The biddy? The biddy. I don't know. I don't know, man. <laughs> There's a lot of Guinness-fueled brainstorming <laughs> sessions. <laughs> but at some point, they... Uh, they take the money and you're, oh, part of the other transition is if you give them the money, then over the year you get it paid back to you seven, seven times fold or something like that. Something fun like that. Mm -hmm. So it's basically a nice, you know, that, that long haul from New Year's to, I don't even know, Memorial Day. There's no real, I mean, Martin Luther King Day to Memorial Day. There's no other real... 
nobody celebrates President's Day. There's nothing really in March. It's that, yeah, it's that like winter. Easter's to on Easter a Sunday. Thing. There's no like holiday. So I think people take like Mardi Gras, or in this case, Bridget's Day, because they didn't have Mardi Gras in Ireland. They were like, we got to get through February somehow. <laughs> we don't know what St. Valentine is. Let's do this. Um, so they kind of have this tradition to kind of kick off spring. And St. Bridget's Feast Day was the perfect vehicle for that to dress up a butter churn and go drink some beer that sounds so perfectly irish i hope everybody got their butter churn back it's, <laughs> it's quite an element to just start flinging around in a dress i know anyway that was the weird crazy tradition that i heard about and i was like oh my god I love there's that. other stories of like um one of her traditions was that she went to a wealthy man's house and she was like i need to graze my cattle here um, can I use your land? And he was like, you can use all the land that your cloak can cover. And she was like, oh, okay. And then in the magical way that saints worked, she pulled her cloak off and was able to cover the entire pasture where her cattle needed to graze. And so there's all these traditions now with St. Bridget's cloak. So part of the Biddy Day celebration is women would put pieces of cloth out on a windowsill or on a on a tree outside their house and that was supposed to help Bridget find them to um, help foster fertility in their home so like to help give them babies and stuff like that there's all this kind of layer upon layer of Easter meets pagan holidays of old Ireland and stuff plus cows and butter and beer I mean it's all the stuff that you think of greatest when you think of the Irish tradition it's greatest hits of Ireland babies butter and beer you're welcome. <laughs> um, so that's St. Bridget. She is also my confirmation name. So there we go. When I said I would be Catholic forever. <laughs> I cited her as the reason, but I also think she's pretty cool. And I didn't know that she was a goddess either. So it has more meaning now than yeah. it did when I picked it. That it, In a way that's like kind of transgressive. You're like, maybe I was picking the pagan goddess. You don't know. Maybe. Or like the girl that was like, I'm going to run this church. Uh, you can answer to me. Yeah. I kind of like that part of her. <laughs> That's pretty excellent. Um, yeah. But and by all accounts, just to tie it back to St. Patrick's Day, she apparently knew St. Patrick. They apparently were very close friends. And as much as you can be in 480 or whenever they were rolling around together. So she is the yin to his yang, if you will. She uh, is thought of in equal esteem in a lot of ways. She just doesn't have the fun holiday where you dye beer green. She has the weird butter churn lady holiday I mean, a if, month before. If I'm going to pick one, like, got to try Biddy Day out. You got to try Biddy Day out. Yeah, that seems like... There are some screwy black and white photos. Let me tell you what. Oh, my God. It's I have to go look at ter- these now. It's partly terrifying. We'll have to find one for the Instagram. Yes, please. All right. So that's St. Bridget. Of Kildare. Amazing. Thank you so much, Katie. You're welcome. See you next week. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. Thank you for listening to Missing History.